0: He spoke of the disk of light and said that they were a point of concentration. What of the waves of light? What are, are they only distraction? When I'm concentrated on the breath, sometimes the waves of light appear and afterwards there's a feeling of settledness and calm. It is as if I know that will come after the trigger of the waves of light. Any kind of light that appears in the mind is a sign of concentration. The disk that I was talking about is a meditation subject. The disks are called kasimas, and they are a meditation subject that the Buddha taught. But the um, spontaneous arising of light in the mind is sort of like a traffic signal. It says concentration is there, and the thing to do when the light is there, particularly if it's bright, if it's dim, it usually doesn't work. But if it's a bright light, is to enlarge it. the point of being large enough to sit in it and when it becomes large enough to sit in it to stay in that for a short period of time and having been in it for well it's hard to say let's say five minutes one doesn't have to look on the watch just uh, not not just momentarily but not a long period of time. Having been in that, completely covered and surrounded by that light, one can go inside the body and become aware of the life of sensation. It can be the access um, to the first meditative absorption. It doesn't necessarily have to work the first time but it should actually be a real entry because it means concentration and the calm and the settledness which which arises from it is a sign of the concentration so while the disc is a substitute for being on the breath here this is the um, sign of concentration When it waves, it gives the impression as if it's moving. One should try and keep it still. Because it's moving, because the mind is moving. So one should try and keep it still and make it larger. And then it will be extremely useful. Without the meditative mind experience, the Dhamma does not rise in the heart. Hence, the Dhamma is not Woods. Oh, that's a quote from the, my book here now Let me see. Um, In many Asian countries, many of the Buddhists recite sutras, um, turn prayer wheels, do rituals to the Buddha, but do not meditate. In the West, Many people practice Buddhist meditation but are not Buddhist, but retain their religion of birth such as Judaism and Christianity. Are these people in the West closer to the past? I can't answer that, I don't know. I think it's an individual matter. If one believes that rituals bring The um, experience of nibbana obviously one is off the path, but doing rituals doesn't necessarily mean that that one believes that. It just means that this is not only a social custom, but also brings a feeling of connectedness to one's religion and to one's path. I can't say whether Westerners are closer to the past, or the Asians are closer to the past. Both have their um, advantages and disadvantages. The Westerner seems to be able to gain insight easier, because we have been um, trained to use analysis, and also logic, and to think. And in the East, from my personal experience, which is, of course, extremely limited, it seems um, easier to gain access to tranquility. So that's um, the only difference that I um, can say, and that is very limited experience. You say we should not look at the summit, but there are lots of books about saints or enlightened beings such as Yogananda, Ramakrishna, Ramana Maharshi, Sham Dalai Lama, and certain Zen Roshis. Stories about their life and deeds have inspired many people to get involved with meditation. These role models are a lot better than the movie stars and sports heroes who are worshipped by a lot of people. Some meditators have gurus who they believe are enlightened and have certain powers. What do you think? The books about such people, as I mentioned here, are the indication that there is such a summit. That's how we hear about the mountain peak, where The air is clear, and the view is beautiful, and everybody is happy. And that gives the inspiration to also climb that mountain. But, if we don't watch every step on the way up that mountain, but only keep our eye on the summit, which we can't see anyway, we're going to stumble and fall. These books do tell us that there is such a thing, but that's all. The work has to be done by each person. It's like having a road map, which is excellently well drawn with every corner in detail. And we keep looking at the road map and saying, isn't it beautiful, isn't it marvelous? The person who drew this road map really knew how to get from A to B. What good is that road map to us? It can't be beautiful enough to keep us interested more than five minutes. If we don't start driving, we'll never get from A to B. And if we use the road map, and I'm sure everybody has at one time or another used the road map, you look at the point where you start, and do you look at the point where you want to finish, or do you look at every corner on the way? I have no idea what to say about the um, with powers or enlightenment. I've nothing I can say about it. Don't know. Is that going together? Okay, every moment is a karma making moment. How about when one is sleeping and having dreams especially including oneself in the in the drama making maybe is that karma making too no we don't make karma while we're sleeping, which is quite nice. Actually. So some of our dreams are really not conducive to good karma. Mm. Mm. What are the different mind states that people may exhibit? I don't know what that means actually. What are the different mind states that people may exhibit? There are 89 mind states listed in the Abhidhamma. Is that what meant? Eighty-nine nine states. I'm afraid I don't know them by heart. We'll have to look them up in the Abhidhamma. And uh, these eighty-nine nine states out of the Abhidhamma are something that's very hard for oneself to relate to. But it's possible if one takes the time, and is interested in that sort of thing. So one can find that in any book on the Abhidhamma. (laughs) The mind is quite settled. No thoughts. Steadily watching the breath. But there is constant leg pain. So the breath cannot get finer. The breath cannot get finer. But not gasping. Gasping? and the pain is neither going away, it's not going away. Should one try to use the leg pain as a meditation subject? If so, how to do it? I have been shifting attention to it for many sitting sessions, but not making headway in watching the pain go away. The Buddha said, In order to meditate properly, one needs to be comfortable in mind and body. Now, when one sits in a position which one isn't used to for quite a long time, obviously one isn't going to be comfortable. There are many schools of thought on what to do. And if one is in a monastery where one is going to stay, it's just as well to deal with that pain and to learn to sit because one isn't going anywhere. But if one is here for two weeks and is dealing with the mind trying to calm it and get it to the point where it's one pointed and then having to deal with the body also one is not going to make any headway. It's just too much and it's far more important to deal with the mind because if one gets concentrated one doesn't feel the pain if the mind is really absorbed in one of the absorption states it cannot possibly feel pain because it is totally immersed in that what it is Attend paying attention to. One might very well feel it when one gets up, but then it's no longer a disturbance for the meditation. So it seems to me that the logical thing to do using common sense is to get the mind one-pointed, tranquil, and really concentrated and then the pain of the body is no longer a topic there are other ways of dealing with this and obviously one can make one's own choice some people take pride in being able to sit it's um, not uncommon that people have, in certain traditions it's much stronger than in this one, and they even talk about it, for how long they can sit without moving, if that's the case, if one wants to do it out of pride, don't. That's the last thing we need. If you want to do it because you want to prove something to yourself and to others, don't. We don't have to prove a thing. But if you want to learn something out of it, yes, that's a possibility. And the possibility is like this. We get to know the progression of the different aspects of the mind and it always starts with sense contact now when we sit we have touch contact it always followed by feeling invariably there are only three kinds pleasant unpleasant and neutral we're usually only concerned with pleasant and unpleasant Here we have unpleasant. The next thing that comes is perception or labeling which says pain. And then comes the reaction. I don't like it. I can't stand it. Or I'm going to grit my teeth. Or I'm going to prove it. Or whatever the mind would like to dream up. It's very interesting and important to know that progression of those four parts of the mind because that's how we live from morning to night sense contact, feeling, labeling, reaction it's pre-programmed and unless we break through that program It's going to stay that way. Now, we could say one day that we're getting bored with that program. But most people don't even know they've got one. So it's very important to know that one has that program. Everybody does. And then one can take a chance at trying to stop at feeling, not labeling, not reacting. Labeling with the word pain is already an invitation to a negative reaction. But when we have nothing but unpleasant feeling, that's not such an invitation. It just is. So if we can learn to stop at unpleasant feeling and recognize it for what it is, just a feeling, nothing more, We don't even have to own it. It just is. It arises because of sense contact. Such contact. And then go back to the breath. Without having reacted at all. That's a useful learning situation. And one can do that several times. Until The unpleasant feeling becomes so unpleasant that the mind is reacting. And then we can shift, move, and admit to ourselves that we have again become a victim to our own unpleasant feelings. We do that constantly. We're constantly a victim to our unpleasant feelings, but we don't know it. We don't pay any attention to it. So this is a valid learning situation an important part of recognizing a human being for what it is. Four parts of mind pre-programmed constantly reacting. If you learn not to react once or twice it brings strength to the mind. The realization that one doesn't have to react. One isn't always forced to react and can also be without it. So that's a possibility. As soon as the mind says, this is awful, but I'm going to sit through it, it's useless. Because it's another negativity and you already have enough negativities without adding to it through the meditation. If the meditation adds more negative thoughts to what we already have, it's not the right way. It's only useful when we can actually learn to be without a reaction. Just an unpleasant feeling. And maybe even when we see the unpleasant feeling and notice the unpleasant feeling, to recognize the fact that we haven't asked it to come, why do we think we own it? If we question the ownership of the feeling, there arises a certain distance between the one whom, who is experiencing and the experience, and the experience is no longer such of such unpleasantness. All of that is useful, but negative mind is not. So one can choose what one wants to do and. we can always go and sit in a position which we can handle without any difficulty so that the mind can actually work on its own discursiveness and not have something else that it needs to attend to. Both possibilities are there. I have noticed that the one thing that does help my currently very entrenched sloth and torpor, is sleeping. Would it be a skillful means to use the sweeping technique in place of all of the meditations on the breath? Yes, absolutely. If the sweeping is um, more concentrated, not beset by sloth and torpor, then it is the right method to use. And method is method by any name. They are all designed to bring either calm or insight or both. So it doesn't really matter. The one that works, that's the best one. So sleeping is excellent. If there's too much sloth and torpor, if it really overtakes one, this morning I mentioned the light, bringing the light into the mind. And another thing that is helpful is instead of the concentration in the meditation, to do a contemplation. Either the one about decay, disease, and death and karma, or about the elements, or about may I be free from enmity. Any one of the contemplations, because the mind is more engaged than. With the sleeping also, it's more engaged than on the breath and therefore the um, drowsiness does not arise so much. So, yes, definitely, use the sleeping and um, also go to contemplation. There's another way one can use the breath if the mind is, has this tiredness and can't be very alert, instead of trying to be, become tranquil, because that's counterproductive. When the mind is already drowsy, trying to become tranquil just makes it more drowsy. It's already on that pathway anyway. Instead of trying to become tranquil, to recognize the impermanence of each breath, and to do that for a few moments, maybe five minutes or even more. Each breath, in-breath finished, out-breath finished. If it wasn't, we'd be dead in very short time. It's got to finish and a new one start. If it stayed with the out-breath, no way, we could stay alive, same with the in-breath and then, going from that experience of impermanence of the breath to the personal experience of the impermanence of each thought each sensation, each emotion as we become aware of them and as we see the impermanence in all that but that we consist of, it may give rise to a deeper understanding of what a human being really is, not what we think it is, and not what we so often would like it to be, but what it really is. Impermanence is the most accessible part of the inside part. So that, too, can be helpful. But if the sleeping is concentrated, that's the biggest help we can have to gain concentration and also not to get drowsy. To do the contemplation of loving-kindness, one has to walk down the memory lane concerning dealings with people, situations, that happened yesterday on some or some ancient time. So looks like it's going to take many sessions. Is this attempting to do a thorough cleanup of the mind or just smart aleck me going through this actual thinking exercise? Hmm? Is it only best to contemplate whilst in a sitting meditative posture? Well, the last uh, part of the question I'll answer first. One can try doing it lying down and then realize why it isn't useful when one wakes up again. (laughs) (laughs) So that takes care of that part of the question. Now the first part... um, I don't know that most people have to go to some very ancient times to find their own hurtfulness and enmity. In fact, I think most people can find it in that particular day that they're just living. And if they can't, they can rejoice. The... um, It's not a thinking exercise. It's an exercise in thinking the right kind of thoughts so that our emotions can follow in that direction. If we just think it, it's better than nothing. But the uh, real purpose is to think it and feel it. So, if we do loving-kindness contemplation, which means that we contemplate, may I be free from enmity, may I be free from hurtfulness, may I be able, uh, may I uh, be without troubles of mind and body, and may I be able to protect my own happiness. If I do that sort of contemplation, it sort certainly starts with thinking about it and then the strong wish that one could change any of the negative aspect of it, and then feeling the positive aspect, and how to be able, also ascertaining, how to be able, in all situations, to bring up the positive aspect. I don't think that one has to go back in time very far, to find one's own uh, enmity. Enmity is everything we dislike. Could you please explain again how you're using the words feeling, emotion and mood especially in relevance to the four foundations of mindfulness. I'm not clear about the distinction between emotion and mood as both are in the mind and not a physical sensation. It's quite true that in the Buddhist terminology, emotion and uh, feeling and mood are all concerned with the mind. But when we speak about them, we have probably difficulty with that and find it much easier when we speak about heart and mind. So what we're looking at is Physical sensations, which are clear to anybody, there's no difficulty in ascertaining physical sensations, they are not a foundation of mindfulness. As, at least not of the second base. Vedana Nupasana concerns, which is the second base of mindfulness, concerns our emotionally, emotional makeup. If a sensation, a physical sensation, arises, it belongs to the first foundation of mindfulness, kaya nupasana, the mindfulness of the body. But with our emotions, they're usually quite clear. We usually know when we're angry. And we also know when we're loving. And we have quite definite understanding of our emotional um, reactions but moods are much more hidden much more difficult to find and they're the underlying foundation for the emotions and the thoughts there are people who constantly have negative mood There's nothing other in their whole underlying feeling, in their moods, other than reacting to whatever touches them with negativity. Obviously, they're going to have lots of negative emotions and lots of negative thoughts. So if one can find one's mood, now there are other people that have an underlying mood of optimism, joyfulness, happiness, creativity that are inspired, energetic and obviously they are going to have a lot of positive emotions and thoughts and then there are those people that have half and half sometimes this and sometimes that And if we can become aware of the underlying mood within us and substitute that already to a positive one, we save ourselves a lot of trouble with our emotions and our thoughts. Most people, unless they've practiced a long time, believe their emotions and their thoughts. And when they're negative, they give a lot of trouble life sometimes isn't worth living so if we can catch the mood we are a step ahead the word feeling encompasses both physical sensation and emotion and it's very often used instead of emotion but it's also used instead of sensation it encompasses both So mood is much more subtle and much more difficult to find but very worthwhile to look for. This one gets to know oneself much better. Can the recollection of contentment be used instead of loving-kindness meditation at the beginning of a sitting period? Yes, that can be helpful. The recollection of one's own contentment can be very helpful. One can do both, only takes minutes, recollect contentment and give one self-loving kindness. Then one is safe on both counts. After I have been concentrated on the breath for some time, I start to get the sensation that I'm getting larger, quite large in fact. Am I on the way to the first jhana or is this another cold symptom? Am I reading this right? Does it mean having a cold or what? (laughs) And there's a very nice little drawing there of a small meditator who's growing larger and larger. (laughs) That depends. Sometimes getting larger or um, um, not knowing where one's hands are or um, feeling as if one is bending over to one side but one isn't actually. It's just a change of perception which comes about through the attempt to concentrate and is not meaningful. But if this growing larger is connected to very pleasant and delightful sensation, then it is certainly on the way to the first jhana. So I can't tell from this drawing. The person who's doing it is smiling, actually, on the drawing. The small meditator and the large one, they're both smiling. So maybe it is very pleasant. And if it's very pleasant, yes, then the uh, attention is not on growing larger. The attention is on the pleasant sensation, whatever it may be. A pleasant sensation in that case would most likely be the loss of body contour and the loss of gravity and a feeling of light, being light as opposed to heavy might occur, or weightlessness. All of that could be connected to this growing larger. If that's the case, then weightlessness or light being light or the loss of the contours, the loss of gravity, any of those would be the meditation subject. And they would have to be very pleasant, and they would be, and therefore would make a meditation subject. If it's only change of perception, then it isn't um, useful. Not yet. Yesterday I was contemplating the connection between Dukkha and letting go of self. Clearly, without self, there is no Dukkha. So letting go of self means letting go of Dukkha. While contemplating, I came close to an edge of a precipice where I must have glimpsed more than I could face. It was such a brief glimpse, I don't know what I saw. Perhaps it was the insight of totally giving in. I was suddenly struck with an instant of intense fear and I stepped back from the edge before losing my balance. I remembered the quotation. I don't recall who said it. Men often stumble over the truth but most just pick themselves up and keep going. Hmm. A Good one, huh? I missed a chance to release but it did show me that while the desire to be rid of dukkha is a good motivation early on the spiritual journey, it ultimately fails, because it contradicts the aim of the journey. Quite true. The desire to be rid of dukkha is actually a desire to gain something, namely comfort, and so it conflicts with giving up self. Would you say dukkha must be embraced as part of our human experience, so we may then let go of it? At the same time, we let go of self. Not quite, but a very interesting experience, to say the least. And one that should give rise to another try. Dukkha must be understood. (coughs) It must be understood to be not necessarily pain, grief and lamentation. Tragedy. It mustn't even necessarily be not getting what one wants or getting what one doesn't want, which is the most common dukkha. It is, in the last essence, that little niggling feeling within oneself which says there must be more to life than what I have known until now. Where is it? Where do I find it? Maybe if I sail around the world, or, and then all the other di- possibilities. It's that nigg- little niggling feeling, that stoker. It's constantly with us. It makes us do all sorts of things, and some of them quite strange, just to find the answer to that. That must be understood first and seen in oneself. But letting go of self is the cause which has the effect that dukkha goes away. Now letting go what was the said let go of it at the same time. No. We don't let go of dukkha consciously. As we let go of self, there's nobody there who's going to have Dukkha. So it's a cause and effect. So we don't let consciously go of Dukkha. But recognizing Dukkha as a person has done is the impetus to do this. And therefore it's extremely valid. And as is said here, quite rightly, it's a good motivation early on the spiritual journey. But it fails because it contradicts the aim of the journey. Because if I want to get rid of Dukkha, I can't get rid of self. I, obviously, would like to be without Dukkha. No way I can let go of self. So it's a little different. The actual actual practice is a little different from this. The contemplation of Dukkha is fine. The understanding of it is fine. The realization, which is also, I think, embedded in this, that as long as there is self, there is Dukkha, that's fine. But then, it stops right there. There mustn't be any thought that I want to be rid of Dukkha. Because it's impossible to do that. What we can do when we come close to the edge where there is a glimpse of a different reality is that one has the impetus that one lets go of everything that one ever thought one was and is perfectly willing and quite determined to be nothing. That's the moment of truth. If one can actually do that, one has an experience which is other than any other. It's an experience where there's only the experience, and no experiencer, and therefore, nothing to say. But the next moment, which is called the fruit moment, that can be described. So, it isn't the wish to let go of dukkha which makes it happen. That's the motivation, which is quite rightly seen. Perfectly correct what's written here. But it is the ability to let everything go that one thinks one is, that one identifies with, that one believes to become, every wish, every desire, every notion of this person and willing to disappear Perfectly willing to disappear If one is perfectly willing to disappear then one can go over that precipice because there's no fear but only when one is willing to disappear as long as one is not willing to disappear of of course there's fear, quite rightly so An instant of intense fear is written here. Absolutely correct. Because there wasn't that attempt to disappear. And even if one thinks, well, let me disappear for a moment, I know I'm going to be right back. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. It has to be a total commitment. And because of that, it's not very easy to do. But if Dukkha is understood, it's enough of an. we let go of anything that makes up this supposed entity, individual. The best time to try this is after. Any of the jhanas. It doesn't matter which one. The Buddha said one can do it after the first, second, third, fourth, any of them. Usually, four, five, six, seven are more conducive to calm and tranquility, but the Buddha said one can do it after any one of them. Because the mind is at ease. And also, it has seen a different reality already through the jhanas and doesn't feel quite as estranged from such a happening where it's supposed to give up its own personality. Everybody believes that their own mind is their own personality. So it doesn't feel quite as estranged from that because it has already touched upon a different level of consciousness. So that's the best time one comes out of the jhana and makes up this determination that having seen dukkha for what it is, one is willing to disappear completely, willing to let go of any identification willing to be absolutely nothing, willing to be that which we really are, only a phenomena, no personality. And then, let the mind reach out to what I call the still point. It reaches out to an experience where nothing happens. Because if I really want to be nothing I have to experience what it is like when nothing happens. So the mind directs itself towards that and if there is an absolute letting go it can do it. If the mind comes back it will say hmm, didn't work, then very useful to investigate what am I clinging to, what is it that's holding me back, what is my identification, to look at that and see if if one finds it, if one is able to let go of that through contemplation and then try again. If it happens, one knows. There's no question about it. One knows absolutely. A very good and interesting experience It doesn't say that it was done on purpose or just happened. One can do it on purpose. Coming, going towards that, as I've just explained.